It's Easter Sunday. It's March 27th, Sunday morning. This morning we are going to, uh, of course, preach on the resurrection. Some people have a problem with the word Easter because it came from asterisk. Well, so did all the days of our week come from foreign gods as well. And nearly everything in our culture. You could have a problem with the Christmas tree. You could have a problem with everything. I am choosing not to have a problem with what the culture around me does. I can find truth in it. You understand what I'm saying? Okay, well, good. Don't be offended later on today when our children go out looking for Easter eggs. If you want to call them resurrection eggs, you can do that. I don't care how you phrase it. The kids are going to have a good time as we teach them about Jesus. Isn't that awesome? That's awesome. You can... To the pure, all things are pure. Let me leave that there. Okay, this morning's message, though, is uh, going to be the glove. The glove. Okay. Where would you think that I might start a message? Any guesses? <laughs> Imagine that. Okay, open your Bibles to Genesis. I told Matthew this morning while we were, we, uh, he showed up while I was studying. I said, you know, Matthew, I promise. I mean, I give you my word because he and I are accountable to each other. You know, and I don't mean that in some kind of weird sense. We, we love each other and uh, we share our lives with each other. And uh, I said, I, I give you my word, Matthew. I really do try. I, I promise. I put considerable effort into not starting messages in Genesis. I can't help it. It's the beginning. So, in any case, we're going to... Hey, good morning. We're going to uh, start in Genesis, and I want you to start in Genesis 1. Uh, we're going to look at the 26th verse. And I want to show you something that hopefully will make sense to you in a new way as we give you some visual understanding of it. Y'all, did y'all appreciate singing the uh, great hello? Isn't that awesome? Isn't it neat when you find out something within the culture of the Bible and then you can associate something with it now? Wasn't the biblical meal, those of you that got to come to it, wasn't that a neat thing? Can't you see in your mind now something a little deeper? Isn't the word a little richer to you than it was before? If you weren't here, it's okay. I'm going to put it on the website so you'll be able to see that. Uh, my, my goal, and I, I've, I've kind of fallen off from doing this lately, you know, we've had LCD displays and all kind of other things. But really what the uh, biblical meal reminded me of is we need visual representations of things. You've got to get things through the eye gate and the ear gate. Then if I can get you speaking it, man, we'll change your whole life as well. So this morning, I'm going to read you a very familiar passage, but I want you to think about it in a special way. We're on page two in your Bible, and <laughs> almost every Bible, regardless of the version. <laughs> Very unusual for me to be able to say that, huh? And uh, we're starting in Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in His own image image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. When the Bible says that God created man in His own image, that does not mean that man is a replica of God. 
It does not mean that man looks exactly like God. In fact, we were talking about website forums before church started. Sometimes there's an icon in the corner before you post a message. It usually says place image here before you put something here. An image is something that represents you. Something that is made according to your pattern that bears significant resemblance so that people know it's not you, but it is like you. Man was made, patterned after in the image of God. It's not that we look exactly like God. It's that we bear such strong resemblance that people can see, wow, we are in the image of God. Well, that brings us to our sermon example this morning. This is not a hand, is it? I mean, it looks like a hand. God's same number of fingers is a hand, right? But it's not the hand. What this glove is to my hand, we are to God. It looks a little bit like God. It's made in the same pattern as God, but it doesn't have all the same exact characteristics as God. Make sense? Okay. promise we'll come back to this. So God made man in His own image. That would mean this would be God in the shadow and type, my right hand. And this would be man. Let's move on from there. In Genesis 3.15, you know what happens. We have a promise because this thing that was made in the image of God, like this glove, it, it messed up. There was a word given to it from God. It said, hey, I don't want you to partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because when you do that, you will surely die. Man listened to an enemy of God who probably was upset because man looked so much like God and was in the image of God. Man messed up. And you know what happens after that? A promise was given. A redemptive promise. God said, somebody in Genesis 3.15 is going to come through this woman. Somebody's going to come through her that's going to crush that power. That's basically what that said. So what we have here is these things made in the image of God we're going to crush the power that they had previously fallen to. You got me? We're all together so far? Well, that was an exciting promise. Just to give you an idea, that was almost 6,000 years ago. That's on that chart back there. That's why it's numbered the way it is and people's lifespans are given so that you can get an idea, a concept of time. Have you ever seen a child wait six minutes for something? It can be hard, huh? You ever had to wait for the brownies to finish cooling? Oh, my goodness, that could be an eternity. Having to wait for Cassidy's brisket today is pretty difficult for me because I know it's there. I know it's good, and I have to wait to endure. I have to endure the waiting to get to it. Can you imagine if you had to wait not a year or two years or three or four or a hundred, but if a promise that your greatest, greatest, most ancient relative had given had been passed down through the generations and you were waiting every generation and never seeing it, how discouraged you might become. But let's start with that first generation. What happened? We have, wow, somebody's going to come through. My wife Eve, the mother of the living, who's going to crush this power of death. Oh boy. And she's got two children. Wouldn't that be an exciting thing? Wouldn't you be watching them every day with anticipation like I watch my children thinking, what will they become? Which one will it be? Which one is it that's going to be crushing the power of the enemy? Which one of the two? And then we have this little problem. Cain developed a jealousy for Abel, right? 
Cain tricks. In fact, where we get the idea of malice of forethought is from this Cain example. He says, come out into the field with me, brother. After showing that he premeditated it. After he gets him out there, he kills it. What kills him? What was God's warning to Cain? What was God's warning to this glove-like thing that was made in God's image but didn't have all the same characteristics as God? He said, sin is crouching at your door, but you must master it. Did Cain master it? No, it mastered him. And who was the other option? If it wasn't Cain who was going to be the Redeemer, who else might have been the Redeemer? Abel. But now Abel's dead. This dead guy can't very well bring the promise of life, can he? The Bible says something unique about Abel that I'll probably mention later. It says that Abel's blood cried out to God. Hebrews says that Jesus' blood speaks a better message than that message that Abel's blood cried out. Isn't that interesting? So we move on from Cain and Abel. And I don't know, we could go through every character in the Bible, but we won't. In Noah's day, we have Ham, Shem, and Japheth, a new hope. You know these uh, Star Wars movies that are coming out. One of them was titled The New Hope or something similar. The idea being after devastation, after it looks like it can't happen, something new is introduced. Well, between Cain and Abel, we have successive generations, Methuselah and Enoch and these guys, and it's not working. None of them are the Messiah. None of them are the anointed one. And every time a woman gives birth, she's hoping. Every descendant of Eve is hoping maybe this one will be the one. But something happens every time. Sin is right here by this thing made in the image of God. And when the devil blows a little bit, it bends and it bows. See, this thing that was made to look like God lacked the strength of God. It didn't have any real constitution. It just looked like God and was full, wrought with weakness. So that when Adam stood before the power of the enemy or Eve stood before the power of the enemy, they bowed over. When Cain stood before the power of the enemy, sin crouching at his door, he bowed over. Ham, Shem, Japheth. We have the youngest son of Noah bowing over to sin, dishonoring his father. In fact, every man of God, whether we're talking about Abraham moving on from Noah's day, Abraham says, oh, my wife is my sister. Other times we see that he didn't have the faith that he was the father of the faith. I mean, Abraham, another man, wrought with weakness. As many men of God as you can think of, from the beginning of time, were wrought with weakness. They looked just like God. Sometimes they had the attributes of God displayed in their life. I mean, think about Moses. Was Moses a powerful man of God? Absolutely. He, with the staff of God in his hand, stood and split the Red Sea. But we also know that Moses was a murderer. God's not a murderer. We also know that Moses didn't circumcise his son. Even though God had said to, his wife had to be the woman of God and come do that. We know that Moses disobeyed God and struck a rock when he was supposed to speak to it. Failings in their lives, weaknesses. These were men just like you and I. And the women in the Bible were the exact same way. When you move on from Moses, you get to somebody like Joshua. Was Joshua a powerful man of God? Yeah, in many ways he looked just like God. He went in bold and powerful to conquer the land. The first time something didn't go right, 
the first battle that they lost, he throws a hissy fit before God in Joshua 7. Oh, why did you bring us out here to die? I can't believe this. Why Everybody's going to look at us now and laugh. I mean, he wilted like a flower. God didn't throw him away. Every time this hand, this thing, that, this glove that looked like God was faced with the power of the enemy, there was found to be weakness. It bowed over. So that all of mankind continually showed itself to be subject to the power of the enemy. We looked like God, but we didn't act like God. We had some of the same characteristics, the same number of fingers, if you will, like the glove, the same number of fingers as the hand. But when put to the test, every man would fail. When you moved on from Joshua, you could go to Saul or David and they're obvious. How about Job? God and Satan have a conversation. Have you considered my servant Job? There's none that is like Job. Job's upright, righteous in all of his ways. Was he? Not when he was put to the test. Like everybody else, he bowed in weakness to the enemy. So that God had to tell this man who was bent over like this glove, who was beat down under the power of the enemy, brace yourself like a man that I may question you. God told him basically, stand up, be a man that I can talk to you, Job. Because he was bent down, beaten, broken under the enemy. Satan knew that this was the case. How did he know this was the case? Because every man he had ever faced had broken and bent under his power. Every man. So when Satan's talking with God about it, he says, "Uh uh-huh. Let me take away his possessions and he'll curse you. When that didn't work as well as he had hoped it would, oh, it worked, son, but not as well as he thought it would. He said, skin for skin, buddy. You let me afflict his body and he'll curse you. Now, Job may not have gone the whole way, but weakness was found in Job to where God had to rebuke him. Weakness found in David, Saul? Yeah. Saul, the man anointed to be king over God's people. A tower of strength, a head taller than all of the other men. I mean, if any glove could stand the pressure of the enemy, surely this guy could. A powerful warrior from the tribe of Benjamin. Somebody that could go out and lead Israel in its battles. Somebody powerful like in the days of Joshua. Except he was terrified of the other gloves. He looked around and when they didn't like some of his decisions or he had to wait on God, Satan was right there saying, Oh, you should be fearful. You should be scared. What do the people think? And he bowed over. Pushed down. Beat down. Broken. Submitted to the power of the enemy. Doing the wrong that he knew he shouldn't do. Not doing the good that he knew that he should do. As many men of God as were raised up, fell. Every one. If you find me a man of God in the Scripture... I will prove to you beyond any shadow of a doubt that they failed. You know how I can do that? They all died. Despite all of man's medical advancements, despite all of our anti-aging creams, all of the hormonal injections, all of the working out, all of the health, all of those things. And when you look at me, of course, I'm the epitome of fitness in all of those regards, right? We're still decaying. We're still dying. Showing that we are submitted bowed over, broken before the prince of the power of this age. Now, this hope that had been there, this promise 
You remember Isaiah spoke about a day when on this mountain, the shroud that enfolds all the peoples, the sheet that covers the nations, it will be torn away. God will wipe away their every tear. He will remove death on this mountain. You remember that promise. This promise was restated in so many ways at so many times. But in every generation, for 4,000 years, we had seen failure. 4,000 years. Can you wait four years for the promises of God? How about 40? What if the promise was never actually given to you? It was given to your father and passed down to you. What if it wasn't even given to your father, but your grandfather or your great-grandfather or how many other greats it took to get all the way back to the promise given to Adam? She'll be the mother of the living one, man. Do you think that your faith might wane? Come on now. Do you think your faith might wane? If every time you had hoped in some great man of God, some televangelist on TV, if every time you had hoped, this one will be the one. This guy can do it. Look at him. When he speaks, people fall down in the bleachers. He's got the world's largest televangelism ministry, man. Every time when you think, this one is the anointed one, he was shown to have weakness and fell over just like you. And so you despise them for it. How could they be weak? I had hoped this one would be the one. The promise seemed to fail. The man was without hope. 4,000 years of trial and error falling on its face. We had waited for the anointed one and been disappointed with every human being we had examined. Abel taught us that the anointed one's blood would speak a message. Methuselah taught us that his death would bring judgment upon mankind. Shem, Shem's life taught us that this anointed one would be someone that all the rest of mankind would either have to get in or get out. Be a dividing line. Abraham taught us that a promised son, this anointed one, this promised son, would be raised from the dead. Or at least avoid death in some supernatural way. Melchizedek, his life taught us that there was a priesthood that was higher than anything we had seen on earth. One that didn't have a beginning or an ending. One that was born of heavenly origin. Moses taught us that the anointed one would be a prophet like him. Somebody come to deliver his people out of what they were in into something that was new. Joshua. You know the first time Joshua is mentioned in the Bible, the very first time, he shows up to do battle with the Amalekites. These warlike people that had been kicking Israel's tail. And he shows up and they get victory. From Joshua's life, you learn the anointed one will show up for the battles in your life. David. What would you learn from David's life? Although the anointed one would show up for battle in a time of warfare, he'd be a joyful, praising, worshiping king. Each man's life taught us something. It taught us that man was weak and that he fell no matter what. But it also taught us about the characteristics of God. In the same way that if you had never seen a hand, if you were born without arms and you looked at this love, you may not see what a hand actually is, but you learn about its characteristics. How many fingers about the size? What the basic shape of it is? Men's lives. This progressive revelation taught us something about God. But they themselves were not the one. They were shown to be full of weakness lacking the strength and constitution of God. So where was this man 
It wasn't promised that God would come and deliver the people. That's not what was promised. What was promised was a seed of the woman would crush the power of the enemy. That's what was promised. Well, every seed of the woman was shown to be weak like this glove, faltering with every wind of doctrine that blew on it. So what would the answer be then? How can you have a seed of the woman conquer this power of death if every time it faces it, it fails the test? What could the answer be? Where was the man? Turn with me to Matthew. It'll be in the first chapter of Matthew. In the Thompson chain, the first chapter of Matthew, at least where we will begin reading, is on page 1069. Where is the anointed one? Every man we've ever examined is weakness, lacks the strength. Although we look like God, we're in the image of God, we don't have the strength that God has. We don't make the decisions God would make when put to the test. Matthew 1.18 This is how the birth of Yeshua, Amashiach, the Christ. Jesus, the Christ. Jesus, you know what that is? You could think Jesus Christ was a first and last name. Jesus means Yahweh's salvation. Christ means the Anointed One. Just by speaking His name, this is the birth of Yahweh's salvation, the one that would be anointed. Anointed for what? What would the anointed one refer to? Oh, it refers to a lot of things. Later on, it's developed into the idea of the entire corporate body of Christ. But here, speaking of this, it is the one who would be anointed by God. Anointed is divinely enabled. That's what anointing means. Somebody who is divinely enabled. If I anointed uh, Steve as a king, it would mean his div- he would be divinely enabled from God to be a king. If I anointed Matthew a craftsman, then he would be uniquely empowered to be a craftsman. This guy, Yahweh's means of salvation, would be divinely anointed. That's what his name, Jesus Christ, means. Yahweh's salvation, the divinely anointed one. You got me? This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they could come together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man, he did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, Yahweh's salvation, because he will save his people from their sins. That's why Paul said the gospel was given first to Israel and then to the Gentiles, save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin, this is spoken of in Isaiah 7, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. They will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, I want to ask you something. Step out of 
the year 2005 for a minute. Step out of churchianity for a minute. Let's just be real people for the first time exposed to this reading these words. His name will be called Emmanuel. God with us. That would be exciting, wouldn't it? But what would happen to you when you considered that these words had been written not yesterday, not just then that day, but 740 years earlier through a man named Isaiah who also had a wife, who also had children, who might have been expecting in his day for this anointed one who would be God with us to come. Because it was the hope of every man and woman who had children that they would produce the Messiah. And it hadn't happened. It didn't happen when it was written. It didn't happen the next year. It didn't happen for 700 years. And now we're saying it's going to happen. Could there be some skepticism? Might you be inclined just in the slightest little bit to not be sure? I mean, after all, people have misunderstood things angels had said before. They've certainly misunderstood things prophets had said before. And after all, couldn't you sit and reason for a little bit? God with us. Well, God's with us in all kinds of ways, isn't He? He was with us in a cloud in the desert. He was with us in a pillar of fire at night. The Psalms even declare you can go to the highest heavens and He's there and you can go to the lowest places in the earth and He's there. So, what does that really mean after all? God with us, right? Couldn't you do that? Couldn't in your reasoning you reason God out of the equation? So it might be necessary for God to give you many convincing proofs. After 4,000 years of man failing, it might be necessary for God to show you, no, this really is the Anointed One. He was tested, Jesus was. Where do you read about His testing? You read about it in a few more chapters. You can read about it in Matthew 4. I'd prefer to read about it in Luke 4. though. Let's do that. Hang to your right. Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. Luke, the fourth chapter. In your Thompson chain, that's on page 1140. Guys, the hope of mankind had been lingering out there in the distance for 4,000 years. The hope of all of Israel, this anointed one who would bring a resurrection. The resurrection of the righteous. This hope of Israel had been lingering for more than 1,600 years and they were a special group of people given a special revelation divinely set up by God, a unique government established by God and they themselves had been waiting for more than 1,600 years. Could there be a chance to think maybe it won't happen? God set out in Jesus' life to prove in many ways This is the Anointed One. To encourage us that it is the Anointed One. One of the things that you see immediately in Luke 4. Somebody read loudly. Luke 4, verse 1. Come on, somebody. Louder. There we go. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. This glove standing here by itself is weak. It is limp. When put to the test, oh, I mean, it can stand some, but when put to the test, when really strained upon, it bowed over every time. Because while men were anointed by the Holy Spirit to do things, while they were divinely enabled for a task to be a king, to be a prophet, 
We had not had men that were literally full of the Holy Spirit. And then if you do have a glove, if you do have a man that is going to be full of something, you know what else is imperative? Can't have holes in it. Can't be weaknesses. This glove would have to be a perfect glove if it was going to hold some substance, wouldn't it? Because if it had a flaw, it would leak out. It would be different. It, although, would be strong for a season. After a while, it would leak. It would be different. It would not hold its shape. Well, Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit and He had no weaknesses to let that Spirit leak out of. For the first time, we have a glove. Something made in the image of God. Doesn't look exactly like God. It's just made in the image of God. But within it, inside of it, filling it in every way with no holes, no imperfections for that fullness to escape. It's filled with power from on high. Colossians speaks of this. Colossians speaks of it in like four different places. But in Colossians 1.19, God speaks of this as having His fullness dwell in Him. In Colossians 2.29, not just full of the Holy Spirit, but the fullness of God's deity dwelt in the man Jesus. If Jesus had been like any other man, born in an ordinary way, although the Spirit might have been in Him, it would have, in some manner of speaking, leaked out through the imperfections. Jesus had no imperfections. There were no holes in His seams. There were no breaks in the integrity of His material. He was perfect, and so He was the perfect dwelling for God, full of the Holy Spirit. Well, we know that now. But prior to going out to be tested here in the desert, what had happened to this glove every time the enemy had faced it? It had bowed over in weakness. It had been shown to be subject to the power of enemy. In fact, if the devil pressed hard enough, you could get this glove made in the image of God to do horrible things. Kill other gloves. Kill other people. Romans 2 speaks about enormous sexual sin. The kind of thing not even found in the animal kingdom. These things made in the image of God were doing when pressed by the enemy. So the tempter comes. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the desert where for 40 days He was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. And at the end of them, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. The tempter comes and he's tempting him. What would be wrong with turning the stone into bread? I mean, what would be, man's got to eat? How might you have rationalized that if it was within your power to turn a stone into bread? How might you have rationalized doing that? I mean, Lord... You have a credit card sitting in your wallet probably right now that you vowed, I'm not going to use it. And when a need comes, you're hungry, so to speak. What is the first thing that happens? The wheels begin to turn in your mind. You begin to think of all the reasons that you have no choice but to use this credit card, right? Jesus was in that position. He's sitting there. He's not eaten for 40 days. And the tempter comes and says, Hey, the Son of God, why don't you turn that bread or that stone into a bread? Did Jesus have a reason to turn it into bread? Sure, he's hungry. 
But Jesus went out led by the Spirit, full of the Spirit, and He would remain led by the Spirit. And there was one important thing missing. The Spirit had not told Him to turn that into bread. See, Jesus did not take it upon Himself in the way that every other man had done to choose what was right and wrong. Jesus as a man did not take that responsibility on Himself to choose. He relied totally on His Father to show Him by way of the Spirit. Where Adam had failed, Jesus was succeeding. Jesus filling this glove in a full and perfect way. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone. Deuteronomy 8.3 The tempter comes and says, Do this. You're weak like everybody else. I've knocked them all down and I'm going to knock you down. And if Jesus began to bow for just a minute, if He began to curl like this glove for just a minute, and there was a glimmer of hope in the devil's eyes, of anticipation. He'd seen every other man fail. So as Jesus began to bow, He was excited. He's getting happy. I hadn't got Him for 30 years, but I'm fixing to get Him. I'm fixing to get Him. And as Jesus began to bow, He raised His head back up and looked and said, Hey buddy, Deuteronomy 8.3 says, You won't live bread alone, but by the Word of God, and so will I. He hit him with the substance that was in him. We say he hit him with the Word. No, he hit him with the divine substance that was in him. The thing that had filled this love that was God was working on the inside. And like the song says, it became visible on the outside. God's substance leading him inside of him just expressed itself in a God-like manner. I will not yield. Bam! And hit him. Oh, the devil had thrown a little flippant jab out there, really working, examining, looking for weakness. And like a heavyweight contender, Jesus reared back and laid him down. This happens three times. And you know what the devil says at the end of it? Mm-hmm. Not having the fun here I've had every other time I face some man of God, I'm going to leave. I'm going to get out of here right now and I will find a more opportune time. That's what Luke says. I will find a more opportune time. That's verse 13. When the devil had finished all of this tempting, he left him for a more opportune time. The first time he tempts Jesus, we have a right cross with Deuteronomy 8.3. The next time he tempts him, and this time using the Word of God, the same pattern he followed with Eve. Did God really say? Calling into question God's Word. Jesus answers with Deuteronomy 6.16. The next time... He tempts him. Jesus answers again from the law and hits him right between the eyes. This glove that looked like every other glove that the devil had been knocking down for 4,000 years suddenly had a strength that had never been seen before. But you know what? The few times the glove had stood up, it was momentarily because it was full of weaknesses. It was full of flaws. And although it might stand when facing Goliath, although it might stand in the temple to Dagon, it would fall in the palace. Although it might stand when facing down the demonic powers of Egypt, it would fall in the desert when facing its own people. Although it might stand in a foreign temple, it would fail in the prayer closets at home. So the devil left looking for a more opportune time. Oh, I couldn't get him today. And there's something definitely unique about this guy. I've never seen this, but I will get him. 
That was the thought in the devil's mind. Meanwhile, mankind is examining. They weren't there. They didn't see this in the desert. They've only heard the promise. They've only heard the proclamation. They know something's different about Him, but they don't know what it is. So we moved on. I mean, after all, how could this be? How many times do you have to go down the street and a pink dog <laughs> pink, bite you before you don't want to see a pink dog anymore? Every time man had begun to place their hope in some anointed leader, it had been failure. Where is this guy? We're hearing Jesus might be Him, but how can we know? Today, how can you know? Look at John 10 with me. John 10 is found on page 1191. This glove filled with all the power of God, this thing that was made in the image of God, it looked like God, suddenly began to act like God as well. Verse 33. We are not stoning you for any of these. I heard a start in 31. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone Him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy. Because you, a mere man, claim to be God. You, a mere man. You, an insignificant glove. You, a guy full of weakness, full of imperfection, just like all of us, a mere man, are claiming to be God. By the way, for all you theologians out there, is there any question that they understood He was claiming to be God? Not at all. That's why they wanted to kill Him. So don't ever fall trapped to the idea that Jesus was just a prophet or that the Bible doesn't really claim that He's God. Everybody in His day understood exactly what He was saying. He was claiming to be God. But in any case, they said, you're a man. You look just like us. We're gloves and you're gloves too. We have imperfections and you do too. A mere man claiming to be God. I mean, the whole idea is disgusting. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? Boy, Jesus had a handle on that law, didn't He? How many verses can you quote out of Deuteronomy, I wonder? Hmm. I have said, does it not say in your law, I have said you are gods. If He called them gods to whom the Word of God came, and the Scripture cannot be broken, what about the one whom the Father set apart as His very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse Me of blasphemy? Because I said I am God's Son. Do not believe Me unless I do what My Father does. Do not believe Me unless My very actions show that I'm doing what God does. Now, you know, this is funny. What do parents tell their children? What do parents tell their children? Do not do as I do. Do as I say. What did Jesus say? Do not believe Me unless I do exactly what My Father does. That's a command. It's not a question. Do not believe me. I'm telling you, you should not believe me unless I do what my Father does. See, many had come that were the hope that you would think might be the Christ. Lord, it's happening in our day. Idiots are putting poison in Kool-Aid claiming to be the Christ. People have got guns and compounds, even in Texas. Shocking as that is. 
God's country here in Texas, claiming to be somebody special. Jesus said, do not believe me unless I do what my Father does. What test are you put to everybody who claims to be somebody? Are they doing what the Father says? Even when somebody says that they're a Christian, boy, that is a bold statement. To be a Christian is somebody who is like Christ. What is the test? Matthew 7 says, not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, shall enter my kingdom. Well, what is the test? What is the criteria? You must do the will of the Father who is in heaven. That's Matthew 7, 21. It got me saved. Because although I was a glove, in this sense, looking like a Christian, I lacked something powerful in me. I could not do the good that I knew I needed to do in something I could not deny. I was not doing the will of the Father. Jesus said, do not believe me unless. Unless is one of those words, though. Unless. Well, unless what? Do not believe me unless I do what my Father does. But if I do it, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the Father is in me. The Father is in Him. What man could not do because he was weak, because every time the power of the enemy leaned on him, God reached down into mankind to do. Was the prophecy true then? I mean, after all, the prophecy said somebody born of a woman. Was Jesus born of a woman? The prophecy didn't say God couldn't help him. The prophecy didn't say God couldn't fill him. In fact, the revelation that ensued from that point forward was progressive. That's why I read you all of those names and told you things that their lives taught you. It was progressive. Yes, he'd be born of a woman, but he'd also be a mighty prophet. Yes, he would be born of a woman, but his blood would speak a powerful message. Yes, he would be born of a woman, but when he died, it meant a special judgment. Yes, he would be born of a woman, but he'd be a dividing line for all of mankind. That you had to get in him or you were subject to slavery. All of those men's lives taught us something about this one who would be born of a woman so that we would recognize him when he came. And now Jesus is there. He's been tempted by the spiritual powers and they're beginning to wonder, oh, I think this guy is who he says he is. I know we've been kicking around these things that look like God for a long time. Even the demons. It didn't take the devil to beat most men. Even a little impish demon was causing men problems. Making them act in ways that they ought not act. Or rather enticing them to. Now the spiritual powers have begun to stand up and take note. Maybe this guy is who he says he is. But the people were failing to take note. Well, how on earth could we, how on earth could we show mankind that Jesus is who he says? The miracles themselves ought to have done it. What is the one way that it could be done? You know, Jesus made the promise in John 5. He made the promise again in John 6. He said, if you are in me, you have crossed from death to life. You have left Adam and you have come into the power of life, relating himself to that very beginning anointed one. In John 6, he said, if you hear my voice, you will come out of the grave even if you've died. If you hear me, you will live. You will never die. But they didn't believe him. And in John 10, he says, don't believe me unless you see me do what my father does. But what is the one thing that is left? 
How could He prove He is the one that has the power of life? How could it be done? I mean, He's not sinning. That's not enough. Well, how could He prove it? He starts with His buddy Lazarus. In John 10, 37, Jesus stands up and He cries it out. You know, He's talking with a woman. He says, don't you believe I can help? She says, oh yeah, yeah, I know this guy's going to raise at the last day, Lazarus. Jesus almost, as if, if He were a regular glove like us, we'd say He was impatient. But since we know He was only led by the Spirit, He was not impatient. He was just saying what was on God's mind. It's like, wait, wait, wait a minute, sweetheart. Quit talking. You don't get it. I am the resurrection. You don't have to wait for it. It's not something in the distance. It's me. I'm here. I am the resurrection. And what else did He say? I am the life. Mankind was coward, beat down under the spiritual power, pushed into the earth, reminded of the dirt that it came from, buried in it, covered by it, showing no hope. And now somebody's here and he says, hey, I'm that guy. I'll take you out of the state you're in and bring you into a new state. Even as Moses took you... In fact, on the Mount of Transfiguration, this is what Moses and Elijah were discussing with Jesus. An upcoming exodus. Of leaving where you're at, going into a new and better state. But how could He prove it? He'd shown the powers in the heavenlies. He'd given them a taste of who He was. And now He was setting out to show by everything that He said and did that He was who He said He was. But they were having trouble believing it. He raised a man from the dead in the 10th chapter of John. Rather than believing, do you know what mankind's response was to that? so that we're not burdened by this overwhelming proof. They called it an outstanding miracle. Let's kill him. Let's kill Lazarus and let's kill him. Then nobody will be deceived by this trickster. Then nobody will run out to him as if he were the anointed one. We know he can't be. For 4,000 years, nobody has been. This guy, surely, if God was going to do it, it wouldn't be for this guy. We're doing the people a favor. We don't want them to be tricked. Can you imagine? this evil thought that was in their minds. But somewhere in the back of a few of their minds, it had to be lingering. What if He is telling the truth? What if He really is who He says He is? And that was working on them. But that wasn't enough. The promises in John 5 and John 6 were not enough. Jesus' statement in John eleven twenty five: I am the resurrection and I am the life. Not enough. Something else had been ingrained in the culture of the people. To the special, to the elite group that were supposed to receive the Messiah as one of their own, something else had been ingrained in them. It's why I did a meal on Wednesday. It's why I showed you for 1,600 years what they had repeated. They had killed the Passover lamb. But what was the requirement for the Passover lamb? It had to be perfect. It had to have no perfection. Couldn't have any weaknesses in this integrity of his fabric of who he was. His seams couldn't be rent or torn. He had to be perfect. He had to be a perfect dwelling for God's very own hand. For something to be perfect, it has to be tested. This is why Hebrews speaks of Jesus as one who was declared to be perfect or was made perfect. You can't be declared a success until you finish the project. Even though God said He would be a success, 
He proved it. But how? What's left? He's done miracles. The man has made blind eyes. I mean, he's made eyes out of spit and mud and placed them in somebody's head. Other guys been there 38 years, lame. He's been healed. Guy laying by a sheep gate, healed. Demon possessed people, freed. A widow's son, raised from the dead. What other convincing proof could there be? What's left? Jesus appeals to them within their own culture because He was revealed as somebody in their culture. On the 10th of Nisan, the day they were all taking Passover lambs into their very own homes, what were they supposed to do with this Passover lamb? They were supposed to inspect it. They were supposed to look at the seams of the glove, if you will. They're supposed to examine it and see, is there any flaw in this that would make it unsuitable for its purpose? Jesus was the anointed one. And on the tenth of Nisan, He stands up in the temple. He says, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? This is like one of those statements at a wedding. If anyone here has reason that you'd like to offer that this man and this woman should not be united in holy matrimony, speak now or... Forever hold your peace. There was not one voice from the crowd. There was not one person that says, I saw you behind that bar on such and such day. There was not one person that says, I know what you did with that woman then. There was not one person that said, I heard what you said at that time. Not one. You know why? Because on the 10th of Nisan, they examined Him and found no guilt. But it wasn't just the 10th of Nisan. Jesus showed up every day. The 10th, the 11th, the 12th, the 13th, and for most of the day, now actually the whole day, the 14th, examining Him. When we pull His beard off of His face. When we beat Him until His internal organs are exposed from the back. When we hang Him upon a cross, naked, humiliated, beaten, bloody. Can we get Him to sin? This is the more opportune time the devil was looking for. Surely, if you can't get him starving in a desert to do something that God didn't lead him to do with his very life, what did, what did the devil say about Job? Skin for skin. Well, Jesus was put to that test. Skin for skin. And he spoke not one word except what his Father in heaven told him to speak. How do you know that? He didn't say one word on the cross that is not found within the Scripture. It is not found prophesied about Him. He only said what His Father in Heaven told Him to say. Surely that would be enough, right? Many outstanding miracles. Tempted in every way, yet found without sin. Examined for four days in Jerusalem. Surely that would be enough. Maybe the people would begin to understand Passover lamb. Passover lamb. Maybe after 1,600 years of repetition and Jesus dying at the exact time those lambs were put to death, when Him crying out, it is finished! And the little lambs in the distance were bleeding because their throats had been cut. Maybe that would be enough, right? Many convincing proofs. But one thing was still needed. Jesus was declared in a very special way to be who He said He was. To be that anointed one. It's found in Hebrews, but we're not going to go there yet. Let's turn to Matthew 28. 
the week of the Passion, traditional wisdom on this subject is you teach the Sunday before Easter about the crucifixion and on Easter Sunday you forget all about that and you only talk about a resurrection. The resurrection is the crowning achievement. But other people have been raised from the dead. If you forget all about the other things, the resurrection isn't what it's supposed to be. Am I bogging you down in the gory details of a crucifixion on Easter Sunday? Am I depressing you? There is a bright ending. Jesus endured everything that He endured because there was a joy set before Him. Well, why? Why? What was that joy? In all of these things He did, what further proof would be needed? In Matthew 28, we see that after the Sabbath, this would be the weekly Sabbath, so now we are Sunday morning, at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and His clothes were as white as snow. The guards were so afraid of Him that they shook and became like dead men. What further proof could have been needed? Jesus said, I am the resurrection. I am the life. Then He raised Lazarus from the dead. The response from the people, let's kill them both. What further proof could be needed that this is the guy that would cause you to go from death to life if only like Shem you would get in Him? What further proof could be needed? Why was this stone rolled away? Why did this angel come down with an appearance of lightning and a roaring of thunder like an earthquake? Why? Jesus wasn't in the tomb. He had already come out. Why roll the stone away? Because God was trying to show you that He was no longer there. Jesus didn't need the stone rolled away, friends. That's a misconception. He wasn't there. The stone was rolled away in yet another attempt for you to see He is who He says He is. Jesus didn't need the stone to be removed. The people did. Surely that would be enough. Certainly, seeing the empty tomb would be enough. 4,000 years of skepticism dies hard though. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as He said. Friends, everything that Jesus said happened. Jesus said, do not believe Me unless I do what My Father says or do what My Father does. In every case, Jesus did exactly. In fact, Jesus said one time in John, the prince of this world is coming for Me. He has no hold on Me though. And the world will learn that I love My Father and I do exactly what He has commanded. Just as He said, come and see. Come and see the place where He lay. Then quickly go tell His disciples, He has risen from the dead and He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see Him. Now I have told you. Surely that would be enough, right? So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell His disciples, Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, He said. 
They came to Him, clasped His feet, and worshipped Him. Anybody know why from Wednesday night they clasped His feet? Not just because it was a kindness that you would show. Feet were traditionally the lowest part of something. A disgrace to be associated with. Touched you, it would be a dishonor. They're grabbing the most dishonorable part of Jesus because even the most dishonorable part, if there were such a thing, was better than their most honorable part. So they touched their head to His feet. They understood at this point. They came to Him, clasped His feet, and worshipped Him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell My brothers to go to Galilee. There I will see them. In other accountings of this, you hear a phrase that says, Why do you look for the living among the dead? See, Jesus had said, I am the light. I am the one that if you were in, you cross from death to life. He proved it over and over that though He looked like a regular glove, there was no imperfection in Him to let the fullness of the deity that was in Him leak out. He was perfectly led in every way. In fact, He says, don't you believe Me? Don't you begin to put your hope in Me? Don't face or trust Me unless you see Me do exactly what My Father says. But how could He prove it? What was the only way left available to Him? He could lay His life down. He could God Passover lamb. And what did the Passover lamb represent? God's means of causing you to leave death and enter life by the way of the blood of something. But if that was all it was, where would the power of life be in that? Jesus, according to Hebrews 7, turn with me to Hebrews 7, is declared to be God in one unique way. Hebrews 7 is found on page 1334. In Hebrews 7, you all there? Verse 15. And what we have seen is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears. One who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation or as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. Jesus was declared on the basis of an indestructible life to be the one who had the power of life within Him. If somebody comes and says, I'm the guy that can fix your car, you would want to make sure their car ran, wouldn't you? If somebody comes to you and says, I am a world-famous hairstylist. I'm a world-famous artist. Wouldn't you examine the art that was in their life or the hairstyles that they had done previously? Here's one that's fun. Are you ladies to ever planned a wedding? When you're going to buy a wedding cake from someone, don't you want to see their previous work? Yeah. It's not enough just to hear about it, is it? Oh, the cake was wonderful. It would be divine. You won't believe how good it tastes. Uh-huh. Show me a picture. Right? Anybody ever here ever bought a house sight unseen? Now? <laughs> no, that was a rental. <laughs> now, here we are. 4,000 years of failure. Every time they had had a chance to get close to somebody, they had seen the glove was full of weaknesses, full of imperfection. Their hopes were dashed. They were beat down and they were covered in a shroud of death. So this guy shows up and he says, I am 
the one. It's me. Guys, you can put your trust in that and I'll show you in many convincing ways. And the powers in the heavenlies began to test Him because they had whipped everybody else. And still, people were slow to put their faith in Him. So He begins raising other people from the dead, declaring Himself to be the very resurrection power, the power of life. And still, people were slow to put their faith in Him. What was the one thing left that He could do? What would be the crowning point in His ministry? To lay His life down for other people, only to take it back up again to prove that He was the one, the unique individual that had come to destroy the power of death. Jesus is the only one that ever walked out of a grave on His own accord. Other people had prophets call Him out. Had Jesus call Him out. One guy even touched the prophet's bones and came out of the grave. That Jesus is the only one that walked out on His own accord. And incidentally, He's also the only one that walked through a stone. Didn't need a door anymore. Surely that would be enough, huh? Now Jesus shows up many times after this. In fact, Matthew 28, after this resurrection, we have a setting. You know what occurs immediately after the resurrection in Matthew 28? Almost as if the resurrection was a prerequisite for this, the Great Commission. But do you know what occurred during the time period between the resurrection and the Great Commission? Paul tells us Jesus appeared to more than 400 people at once. The Gospels tell us He appeared in two different places to His disciples, sat down ate food with them. One time He says, here, touch the holes in my hand. Touch my side. In the traditional greeting, peace be with you. I've overcome the world. He added to the traditional greeting, I've overcome the world. He gave them a priestly blessing that comes out of Leviticus. To may the Lord bless you and keep you. May He make His light to shine upon you. They sang hymns together. Jesus spent time with them some 40 days in total so that they would see He has the power of life. This is not, he wasn't a feigning spell. <laughs> it, 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 was, it was not some medical miracle. He was dead and in the grave for 72 hours and took his life back up. And when he took his life back up, he was in a body that could never taste death again. It was like theirs, but different. It was like theirs, but different. Kind of like the glove in the hand. The glove was like God, but different. Jesus was now like them, but different. What was different about it? He could be seen to have the fullness of God in him, the glove removed. Now he's standing there in a body that never dies. His majesty before them, showing them. And what did he promise? What's next? What is he? When the Passover lamb was killed, they went out into uh, into a field. And uh, after... They went out in the field and got a sheaf of barley. They waited a... Uh, actually, it was a few days after the Passover lamb was killed. It was the first day of the week when they did this. They came back with the sheaf of barley and in the temple courts, the uh, leaders would hold the sheaf of barley up and they would say, this is the first fruits of our crop. We're going to get the rest at Pentecost in another day. Uh, I mean, another so many days. Uh, 50 days. Uh, but this is a sheaf. It is the first fruit. There's more like this in the field. On that very day, the apostles found out that Jesus had been raised from the dead. The first among many brothers. There's more like this in the field. He didn't come and be resurrected just to show you how great He was. In fact, Jesus rarely ever talked about Himself. He talked about His Father. The Spirit comes to show us how great Jesus was. Jesus really came to show you how as a glove you can have strength in you. 
He really came to show you how you can be full of the Spirit. How you can do the very work of God. In fact, He's promised to fill you with the same substance that filled Him. So that you can do lesser works than Him. So that you can do equivalent works to Him. Now, what does the Scripture say? I tell you the truth, you shall do even greater works than these. That's what the Bible says about you. So what does the resurrection really mean to you? Where does the rubber meet the road with this? Is this just a convincing proof? No, it is an empowering proof. If He got up out of the grave, then He was who He said He is. If He is who He said He is, then the things that He said about you are true for you. And He says that He put His substance in you so that you no longer had to bow to the power of sin. So that you no longer had to be subject to the enemy in the same way that our ancestors before us had been subject to the power of the enemy. It is no longer a given that you must sin. I know churches teach that it is. In fact, they've perverted God's grace into a license for immorality. But what the resurrection really shows is that you do not have to do anything that God doesn't want you to do. You may choose to, but you don't have to because that same indestructible power is in you. From here on out, I hope Easter means something more to you than just a day where you get eggs or your kids sit in the lap of some guy dressed as a bunny. Easter is the event that shows that a man was so full of God, he's declared to be just who he said he was. God. And He promised to pour that same substance. We don't want to say God-like substance. That'll make you get the eebie-jeebies. Peter called it divine substance into you. Pauline epistles also raised Jesus up to be at the right hand of God. A man in the Godhead. And that's awesome, isn't it? A man in the Godhead. Isn't that neat? You know what else it says? You're seated with Him. See, Christianity takes us so much further than the garden ever caused us to fall. Adam lowered the human race beneath a spiritual power. They had power in the air-ish realm. Jesus has raised us above that and caused us to dwell in the third and highest heaven with God, seated with Jesus at God's right hand. He's the first and He's bringing us with Him. What the resurrection means to you is not just that Jesus raised from the dead means that we will raise from the dead and that we will be God's sons. Some people make a distinction between the Son of God and God's sons. That's okay. I'm not telling you you are Jesus. I'm telling you you're in Jesus. Jesus never said He was the Father. He said He was in the Father. Isn't that interesting? As we close here, I wanted to read you a list of Scriptures and we are closing. This message was the message that traveled throughout the Roman Empire. that spread all over the world. Our modern day message of believe on Jesus, die and go to heaven was never preached in the first century. It was never even conceived of until after the Romans conquered the church. The wolf in sheep's clothing devoured the true church. Right now you can turn on the news and everybody's horribly fearful that this iconic figure is going to fade away into eternity. If He were really what He claimed to be, it would be a glorious event, wouldn't it? 
what the true church, what the early church preached, was this resurrection and its implication for you. Acts one twenty two says we're all witnesses of the resurrection. The Great Commission said go out into all the nations, teaching them to be disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They had to see the resurrection before they went to be witnesses of something. What were they witnesses of? Acts one twenty two tells you. Witnesses of the resurrection. Acts 2.31 reemphasizes they were, they were witnesses of that very fact. In Acts 4.2, you see that not only are they proclaiming Jesus' resurrection, but our resurrection in Jesus. In Acts 4.33, they're testifying to a resurrection from the dead. In Acts 17.18, they said, Our good news, the good news that we're teaching, is about Jesus' resurrection and yours in His. In Acts 17.31, they were giving convincing proofs. He, Paul, standing before the Oropagus, says Jesus was who He said He was and God proved this by raising Him from the dead. In Acts 23, verse 6, Paul said, I have a hope. My hope is in the resurrection. In Acts 24, 14, and 15, and then in Acts 26, verses 6 through 8, he said, this hope I've been telling you about, this hope that occurs in almost every chapter of Acts from the beginning all the way to the end, this hope that is the blessed hope of the Gospel, it's the same hope that Israel should have always had. The same hope that the twelve tribes had. That there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the unrighteous. That's what the Gospel was preached because it's empowering. It's liberating. It will change you. It takes you out of the weakling glove-like status and into the mighty fist and hand of God. You are the body of Christ and nothing less. You are the hands and feet of God and nothing less. If you see weakness, you smile at it and say, God will be my strength. We don't deny there's a glove. We just acknowledge what's inside the glove. The Word says nothing good dwells in your flesh. But we know that God is good and He dwells in us. He proved it by the power of an indestructible life. Y'all stand up. Jesus, we love You. You are awesome. Lord, I appreciate the extent to which You went to prove Your love for us. Lord, I thank You. I celebrate on this day more than any other day. Lord God, You have power over death and You came to bring us life and not just any life. You've given us an abundant life. You've given us life to its very fullest measure. There is no better way to live than in You, Jesus. There is no more joyful way to live than in You. Lord God, You have given us life to the fullest extent and I thank You for it. Lord, You are worthy of praise in this place. You are worthy of honor in this place. You are a great and glorious King. Lord, we ascribe to You worship. Our spirits soar in Your presence. Lord God, You are awesome. And I thank You for the power of Your resurrection. I thank You for causing me to know the power of Your resurrection. Lord God, give me strength to overcome my flesh's weakness. Give me strength to shine like You shine. Lord God, I pray for that strength to be evident on the outside. Holy, holy God, You are beautiful to me and I thank You for it. Jesus, we honor You today. We honor You today. 
our risen King who will cause us to rise. You are the firstborn, Lord God. And the Word says you're not ashamed to call me a brother. And I thank you for it. I thank you, Jesus, for not being scared to associate yourself with a leper. You knew that when you touched me, I'd become clean. Jesus, I love you. I thank you. And I won't even allow my own thoughts to war against the fact that you've touched me and I've become clean. In the name of Jesus, we commit ourselves. Amen.